Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. that series has been about and where we are even as a church and what we're growing. And we're looking at how the realities of Jesus and his gospel are not just something that we believe once in the past, but that the good news of Jesus is what we call a functional reality in our lives, that Jesus and his good news is to be continually planted, replanted, realized deeper and deeper in every area of our life. And so last week, we looked at Romans 1. And we saw that Paul exposes us to what the Bible calls idolatry. We saw that idolatry is the deadly exchange, where we exchange the glory of who God is and what he has done, and we exchange that for created things, and we worship and serve other things besides God. If you remember last week, we talked about how you you might be thinking, an idol You're telling me I'm an idolater. I don't bow down and worship wooden or stone statues. But we saw last week that that's not what an idol necessarily is. An idol is anything that you give your real trust, hope, and allegiance to other than God. Whatever you make sacrifices for, whatever you worship with your time, energy, and money before God is an idol. And what's so interesting and sinister about idols is that they're often really good things. Did you know that your own children could be an idol? Something that you live for and worship, that they have to be the ultimate. If something's wrong with them, then all of life is off. Wow, sounds like that might be a functional God. Did you know your job could be an idol? where you will make sacrifices. You will lay down time, money, energy, sacrifice your family for your job. That's an idol. Idols are things that we think we cannot live unless I have this thing. If I lost this thing, I would be ruined. Life would be over. And anything, an idol is anything that becomes more fundamental to our happiness and joy and identity instead of God. Some examples of idolatry, getting a job, getting a new position at a job, even wanting to be maybe in ministry, that could be an idol. Your marriage, friendships, getting married, your children. Often if you want a quick assessment of, well, I'm not really an idolater, look at your Instagram feed. What is it filled with? What is it showing you? What are you looking to to give you the good life? It is there you will probably see, oh, Maybe I am worshiping something other than God to give me the good life. Last week, we also saw that idols are the sin underneath the sin. Often we look at external sin, sexual immorality, worry, fear of people, and we think, oh, well, those are the sins that we need to just get rid of, right? Stop doing the bad sins. We saw that our idols are much more sinister because they are the sin underneath the sin, Often we think we just need to stop doing the external things, but that just leads to moralism. 
That's not where we actually change our hearts. That's not actually where we change our affections that are driving us to those external sins. And so what we landed on last week is we saw that every human being often operates and lives within the realm of one of four primary idols that we all worship. Sometimes they overlap. Sometimes you're worshiping all of these at once. I know I regularly find myself worshiping these four different core idols at once. And those idols are the idol of comfort, the idol of approval, the idol of power, and the idol of control. Your, I guarantee you right now, your life is being driven and operated. There's some way that one or more of those idols is at work in your life. I'm not saying you're not a believer, because I hope that you are a believer. But just because we have claimed allegiance in Jesus does not mean that we are immediately freed of all of our idols. That we're not often giving our allegiance and our heart and our loyalty to these other idols. So today, we're going to continue to dive deep into each of these idols and seeing how the good news of Jesus awakens us yet again to how Jesus is our true approval, our true comfort, our true source of control, and the one who has all power. So let's pray, and we're going to jump into this. Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be together as your people. We thank you for your word that you have given us, for your spirit, whose very presence with us is you with us, that through your spirit, Jesus, we get to experience you in our life together. And so God, right now, I ask for your help personally as I'm trying to walk through this and explain these things, Jesus. Thank you for how you have met me this week. Thank you for the many pointed ways you have been exposing my own idolatry this week. Even in the middle of preparing for a sermon on idolatry, you have been showing me my own idolatry, which ultimately is your kindness, Jesus. So I pray the same thing for my friends, my brothers and sisters here, Jesus, that together we would be able to turn from our idols and see you, Jesus, as the source of our joy and hope and that you would stir us up afresh, Jesus, to be people of your mission here through realizing and seeing and attacking and destroying and dismantling our idolatry. So Spirit of God, we ask for your help. We ask for grace right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do is I'm going to basically have three different movements in this. I mean, we're going to look at gospel realization in you, like you actually coming to understand your own idolatry, Then we're going to look at, very briefly, how do you survive getting your idols exposed? Lastly, we're going to look at gospel realization through community, how the only way we can ultimately see our idolatry is through life with each other. So let's look at this first point, gospel realization in you, understanding your own idolatry. So we saw last week, the real problem isn't just that we do external bad stuff. Our real problem isn't just that we are sexual sinners or worriers or that we get angry. No, our real problem, friends, the real sin under the sin is that we are putting our hope and our allegiance in something else besides Jesus. This is what we call our unbelief. This is what the Bible refers to as idolatry, the other things that we look to to give us hope and rescue. And so as I already mentioned, we looked at those four idols last week, and we just briefly introduced those. So now we're going to deep dive into each of them. 
one sense, we're going to interrogate our hearts. We're going to ask the Spirit to come in and show us maybe where we're worshiping one or more of these things. Let's start with comfort, the idol of comfort. Do you live out of the reality that comfort, ease, and pleasure are the most important things in life? And you might think, well, I don't know. How do I determine that? Well, you know you are driven by comfort if your worst nightmare is stress and demands. You avoid confrontation at all costs because it could lead to tension. And comfort doesn't just mean, oh, I want to sit back and just chill on my couch and play video games and eat pizza all day. No, that's not what comfort is. Comfort is that you will do whatever possible to avoid anything that you would deem uncomfortable. And you will spend your time, money, and energy to avoid whatever you would deem as discomfort. Often when we are living for keeping our comfort, we find ourselves experiencing anxiety or panic attacks. When we are convinced, I need this so bad or else. If this gets taken away, we resort to our fear because we realize our God is not being met. You see, in your pursuit of comfort, you are actually enslaved, both in your mind, in your life, You are a slave to whatever sense of ease and comfort in life you must have, or else you will be angry, upset, depressed, anxious. This, friends, is the idol, the God of comfort. How does Jesus speak into this? How does Jesus speak into comfort? How is Jesus your real comfort? How does Jesus offer you better comfort? As we've been looking at in this series, how does the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done actually speak into your idol, your God of comfort? Well, let's think about what the gospel of Jesus actually tells us. In the gospel, we have good news that God in Jesus is reclaiming all things We have the message that God in the flesh is here with us, which that alone doesn't necessarily bring comfort unless we know how has he come. He has come saying, I'm your high priest. I am your high priest. Well, what is a high priest? You might be like, okay, big deal. It's still not telling me anything, Nate. A high priest is someone who goes before God with our needs. The people of God in the Old Testament, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, how many high priests a year did they have? One. One high priest a year would bring God, the people of God's needs, sins, this reality of I'm going to step before God and the people and tell God, here's where we're at. Here's the sacrifices we need to make God. So this high priest is one who would Go on behalf of the people before God, who would mediate between them and God. And in the book of Hebrews, specifically, if you want to jot down a note, chapters 3 through 9 in Hebrews, we read that Jesus is a high priest who is so deeply committed to our needs, our safety, our provision, our protection, 
He's so aware of what we need when we are weak that what did he do as a high priest? He took on the greatest discomfort of all time to rescue us from that true discomfort. Jesus took on abandonment by people, abandonment by God, physical discomfort, real dark suffering, the reality of separation, the loss of real comfort. Hebrews 8.1 says, the point in what we're saying is this, you have that high priest. You have that kind of high priest who is so deeply committed to your comfort, to you finding him as your real comfort. So if you are someone right now who is recognizing, yeah, I, I do worship comfort. I live for my comfort being met at all times. Let me ask you this. Who's your priest? Who's your great high priest in your quest, your need for comfort? You have one. You have one. You have a high priest who is so deeply committed to you that whenever you experience discomfort, you can say, where's my real comfort right now? How does the fact that he has already promised himself to me actually help me transform this lack of comfort that I'm worshiping right now? So where right now in your life are you facing discomfort? Think about it. Jot it down. How does the fact that Jesus as your real high priest has already come to you and accomplished your deepest comfort, that he comes to you now as your comforter, as your shepherd, as your high priest. How does that actually transform where you're worshiping comfort and all the other places? <clears throat> if you see that Jesus has already secured for you and kept you and protected you from the greatest discomfort, then that means that any smaller discomfort does not need to rule you. Because let me tell you this, your pursuit of comfort will fail you. Your desire to always have to be comfortable will fail you. That God of comfort will always die. And what are you gonna be left with? You can then go. Again, that's where in one sense idolatry is terrible but amazing because our gods will always fail us. That means that we can actually go to the real source of comfort. There's a lot more to say about comfort. But let's move on to the idol of approval. The idol of approval. I'm tempted to laugh at each of these because I'm about to say, oh yeah, I really struggle with this one, but I would just say that for everyone. If you are someone who wrestles with needing approval, then you live out of the reality that as long as you're accepted by peers, family, boss, parents, anyone, then life is good. It doesn't mean you have, need acceptance by all of those things. It just might mean that there's these couple people in my life, but as long as I'm good with them, then life's okay. I have a friend, not part of redemption, but maybe I'm going to call you out with the story because maybe this is true of you. He's married building a family, but if his mom is not okay with him, he's a grown man, he's a wreck. 
He's enslaved to approval by his mom. Life is only okay. I'm only okay if they are okay with me. Anyone live like that? Raise my hand. I had a friend who was counselor or pastor to me, and he helped me realize Nate is only okay if X people are okay with Nate. Deep idol of approval in Nate's life. People who live for approval, you dread rejection. You dread people being mad at you. It destroys you. The thought that someone might be thinking poorly of you or be hurt by you, that'll keep you up all night. Are you someone who's regularly going around asking people for forgiveness? For things that they're not even aware of? For things they're not even upset about? If you live for approval, we're going to get really painful here. If you live for approval, you often live in cowardice. You are too afraid to speak up. You are too afraid to confront someone when they are wrong or when you have to say something to them they might not like to hear. You are a slave to others' opinion of you. And you feel you need to maybe hide your real self or maybe become a different person in front of different people? Have you ever heard somebody talk about your true self versus your false self? If you know Nate at all, you know that Nate's a normally very loving, welcoming person. Well, in one sense, that's a false self of Nate because I need people to be okay with Nate so that Nate can be okay. Maybe you're living for approval because you can never say no. But isn't your problem you just need self-esteem, right? That's what the world would tell us. Oh, you just need some self-esteem. You need to, you know, buck up, get more confidence, right? You just need to dig in, assert yourself more. You got to throw some punches, man, right? I have literally been told this by people. Your problem is, no, you just need some more confidence, man. Buck up. You realize that actually only makes you prideful. (laughs) That actually doesn't attack the root of approval, because now you're just going to base your confidence on your own abilities, which will fail you. If this is you, if I'm describing you along with myself, the real God that you're living for is the God of approval. And your life is completely off balance if this idol is not satisfied. So how does the gospel, how does Jesus speak into our need for approval? How is Jesus your true and functional and constant approval? Well, in your fear and need for approval, you are living as if you don't have a righteous verdict on your life. You are living as if you need the stamp of approval from others, and your life is continually hanging in the balance if you don't have that stamp of approval from whoever those people would be. But in Jesus, he has already declared, you are in with me. That's what righteousness means, that you're in with Jesus, that he has already approved of you. That he has shown that to you at the cost of his own life to give you his own stamp of approval. Like, first off, do you hear how committed God is to you that he would give up his son so that you could have all of your center of approval 
now be locked in, not to you, but into Jesus. That means that if you're in Jesus, eternal approval. What kind of worth and value does that stamp on your life? If Jesus is your stamp of approval, your standing with God is not based on how well you think you're performing. Your standing with God is not based on if they're okay with you or if they like you or if you really screwed it up or not. Your standing with God is based on Jesus. His record, his righteousness, his approval that he brings to you. But often we feel like we don't have this righteous verdict on our life. We live as if we need the stamp of approval from other people so then we can be okay. But your standing with God is not based on how well you're performing or how well people are approving. In more technical theological terms, and this might be a sentence for you to chew on, your justification does not hinge on your sanctification. Though we often act like it does, we often grovel and hide from God and from other people because we're so aware of where we failed. We, if you're like me, you go full-on dark introvert. I had a really good friend who used to come to redemption, and he would regularly tell me, oh, Nate's got the hood up. And Because sometimes I'd be in meetings with him, and I'd actually have a hood up, and he knew. But then other times I'd, like, living in my head, so full of shame, I suck. I screwed this up big time. I'm not good enough. I'm not like them. They're probably mad at me too. Oh my gosh. Pulled the hood up even more. Anyone like that? Yeah. We live inside our heads. And, and what do we often do? We live like that inside our heads until we somehow convince ourselves, well, I'm not that bad, right? Let me scoop in a little of my own good works. Or... Somehow in God's mystery and kindness and mercy, we just forget about how bad we are and we just keep going forward. <laughs> we don't do business with what's actually going on. Don't you see that what you are doing in that, you are living off of the justification of other people. You're feeding off of that. You are willing to bow down in front of that. Do you hear the language of idolatry. In our quest for approval, we often feel shame when we have failed. That shame leads us to hide. Does that sound like anybody else in the Bible? When confronted with what they had done, they hid. Friends, we're just like Adam and Eve in the garden. But in the good news of Jesus, as you connect this to your life, you realize that your performance doesn't bring you God's approval. If you are in with Jesus, the life you now live by trust and allegiance and trying to be loyal and faithful to Jesus, the Father sees Jesus. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the Father is so thrilled with Jesus. Remember the baptism of Jesus? As Jesus goes into the waters of baptism and comes out, 
What does this father declare over the son of God? This is my beloved. I'm well pleased in him. If your faith is in Jesus today, I don't care how much you've screwed up in life. If your faith is in Jesus, do you know what the father says over you? This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. Because you're not basing your life on your performance. You are now saying, I am found in another. Friends, where do you need that truth to wash over your soul? Where do you need to hear the love and acceptance of approval through Jesus that the Father has over you? And what's so crazy is this literally takes us to the very core of the gospel. In our world, in world religions, any world religion you would look at outside of grace and Christianity would tell you, my obedience precedes my acceptance. I obey and then I get accepted, right? I, I pray the prayer, I do the good stuff, I perform the sacrifices, and then, okay, now you're in. What does the gospel tell us? You're in. And now out of so deeply realizing what that means, your heart's changing. What do you want to do? You want to obey. When you see one who has loved you so deeply that he would give up his life for you, that changes your heart. And then you will want to obey him. So the gospel tells us your acceptance precedes your obedience. Since you already have all of the approval from the only one who matters, this brings liberation. This brings the ability, for some of you, you really need to hear this, this brings the ability to be yourself to be who you actually are, to let down the charade. Not to be who people expect you to be. Not to be what your family of origin has always told you you're supposed to be. You are freed to be the image bearer that the Father has made you to be. Not a mirror image of what you think you're supposed to be. Friends, this is insane. This is the scandal of grace. So if you already have the complete approval of the Father and you cannot lose it, how does that impact your need for approval with other people? What kind of freedom and liberation would you have in your relationships if you were not ruthlessly controlled by this fear of losing approval from people? Circling back to confidence, this is what brings real confidence. You have a confidence in Jesus, knowing that he has your back. And he loves you so deeply. That means you can actually now rightly love and serve other people, not because you need their approval, but because you actually genuinely have been changed and want to go love and serve other people. You can love and serve others out of freedom, not out of bondage. So do you see how the gospel of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, actually speaks and transforms our hearts? I could just like stop there. We've got two more. Let's talk about power. Power. 
some of us here live for power. And again, you might not think that you are a power-driven person, but let's unpack this. Some of us are driven by thinking the worst-case scenario is losing. Maybe you avoid things where you know, I don't know if I can win. I don't know if I can accomplish. I don't know if I can finish. I don't know if I can be the best. So I'm not even going to do it. Anyone out there like that? I know that often keeps me from things. If I'm not guaranteed a shot at victory, then I'm not going to do this. If I'm not guaranteed a shot at winning, leading, having domination over other people in life, in business, in a simple game of knockout basketball, then I'm not going to do it. And when I say this word winning, I'm not just saying, oh, I've got to win a board game, which some of you, your idol of winning comes out with board games. I mean winning in an argument. I mean winning when it comes to how money should be spent in your household. I mean, you know your way is the best way, and if people don't go with your way, then you're at least going to let them know when they fail. Told you. That's the idol of power at work. How do you know, though, if power is your God? What happens when you start to lose? What happens when your plans start to go haywire? Maybe you get angry. Maybe you explode. Maybe you're like a rager power person. Or maybe you just get super depressed. Maybe you also go full-on dark introvert right there. When you're trying to have influence over people or over certain domains of life, what's actually happening there is that you are seeking to have power and mastery over people, over situations. And just to dig a little bit deeper, if this is you, if this is you, then I'm pretty sure being seen as weak or vulnerable is basically a death sentence for you. To be blunt, you suck at vulnerability. Hear that in love, please. Because why can't you be vulnerable? Why can't you be real about how jacked up and weak and afraid you are? Because you live for being proven right. You live for continually being vindicated by your power. You live by being the one who always has the best ideas. So you have to continually prove yourself to others, even to God, that at root you are worth something because of your power. You are fighting to secure your own good. So that means you have to have power over your life and over other people. So the question for you is how is Jesus your true power? Or maybe the better question, how is Jesus the real victory that you need so deeply? If you remember, in the opening weeks of our series, Pastor Scott walked us through understanding what the word gospel means. Well, in the ancient world, troops would go out of their cities to go engage in combat. Soldiers would be gone for a really long time, weeks, months, years on end, and the people would be waiting back in the town for news of defeat, meaning the enemy's 
are coming now and they're going to take us, or the news of victory coming back. So in the ancient world, they would send a guy to come running back to the city to declare the gospel, to declare the good news, to declare the fact that we were victorious. So the gospel is good news of victory. Who's the victory center on, though? It's Jesus. The gospel tells us that Jesus has not just secured the victory, but that Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the true victor. Jesus is the one who has overcome. And not only does Jesus overcome and have a victory, who does he give his victory to? To us. He shares his victory with us. which is better than any victory we could ever hope to attain. Jesus in the gospel has secured for you and given to you the only battle and outcome that could ever really make you a loser. Since we have victory in him and he invites us to participate in victory over Satan, sin, and death, that means that you can stop living for your own victory in all things. Jesus as your victor means you can find your true power in him. And you can give up pursuit of all the smaller victories that you so desperately need in life. Do you realize that in this transfer, you're actually participating in the life of God? We no longer need to build our own kingdoms and palaces of victory and reputation because Jesus has brought and is bringing in his own kingdom and we are realizing and believing deeper in his true victory, which means we could never truly be a loser. We are given the highest honor, the highest reputation. That means in the gospel, we see that we have a better king who is always willing to share with us what he has accomplished. So what, what does that mean, though? Like, when you begin to deeply realize that, that is how you overcome your deep fear of losing. That is how you overcome the crippling power of fear that keeps you from stepping out in faith to do something where you aren't guaranteed the victory. Like, we'll go there and say, like, do you realize like, you could actually take risks? Because yeah, you might fail and fail and fail, but guess what? You haven't ultimately failed. Your power is still tied up with the one who has secured all power. Listen to this quote. The gospel frees us from the urge to self-gain, to push ourselves forward for our own purpose and agenda and self-esteem. When you understand that your significance and identity and purpose and direction are all anchored in Christ, you don't have to win. You're free to lose. This is not telling you to go be a loser. This is saying you're free to do things where you might actually lose. You're not tied in to what you have to accomplish. Nothing in this, cr- in this broken world can beat a person who isn't afraid to lose. You'll be free to say crazy, risky, counterintuitive stuff like to live as Christ, to die as gain. That is pure, unadulterated freedom. Since Jesus is our strength, our weaknesses don't threaten our sense of worth 
and value. Every time I read this quote about being free to lose, you know what I think about? I think about martyrs. People right now in the world who are suffering for Jesus. Locked in prisons, forgotten, maybe even being tortured for Jesus. Nothing can beat them. Nothing can defeat them. Because where's their strength? In their abilities and fortitude to overcome? No. They've got the victory. The victory in their suffering is actually being vindicated more. I don't know if any of us are really facing that type of persecution. But what's keeping you in fear? Do you see the power you have in the gospel? The real victory is won. So that means any smaller victories, any other smaller losses of power, haven't really lost anything. You don't have to prove yourself and always win. Because for some of us, we need to hear this, the work of atonement is done. You don't need to give a reckoning for yourself anymore. The idol of power is destroyed through belief in the gospel through seeing Jesus as our real source of power. This is also then where you find freedom to be vulnerable, to be seen as weak, to be free to say, yeah, maybe I do know some good stuff. Maybe I do know the best way, but guess what? If my, if my vote doesn't count, it's okay. It's okay. I don't have to fight for my way. You're free to lose, which doesn't mean give up trying and fighting. No, that actually means push even harder because you know you ultimately can't lose. <clears throat> so for my power worshipers, <clears throat> my power worshiper friends, I want you to hear this. Jesus is your victory today. Let's go to our last idol. We can all laugh because we know who these people are. The control people. Starting with me. Us poor control people, we're often the easiest to spot. You know you are someone who worships control if your true good life is maintaining everything going according to your plan, everything going smoothly, everything starting on time. Life is only going well if you fill in the blank is happening in the right way. Oh, man, this is like painful. Your real hope and trust and faith commitment and loyalty is located in the fact that you must be sovereign over all things or else all hell's gonna break loose. Folks who wrestle with control often reveal this idol by anger, by panic attacks, by extreme anxiety. Everything has to go according to my plan. Not just because my plan is right, but here's the thing. No one else is watching out for my good, except for me. No one has my back, so only I'm gonna fight for my good. That's what's root at control. No one else is watching out for my good. No one else is going to do all this. So I need to take control. This is where I want you to see, like, 
there's something motivating this. It's not just, oh, you're a control freak. No. Like, husbands, wives, if you use that language against each other, I would encourage you to stop using that language. Your spouse, your brother, your sister, whoever, is not just a control freak. There is something driving them to be like that. How is Jesus our true control? How does faith in the gospel allow us to trust in Jesus' control over our life? Well, in the good news of Jesus, we see that Jesus, thank God, is the true king. The true king who has overcome the true enemies of Satan, sin, and death. This means that Jesus and Jesus alone knows how to run life best. And he frees us from our need for control. Listen to Philippians 4. And for some of you, maybe this is going to be listening to it for the first time in light of this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Side note, people who love control don't do that. Again, I'm calling myself out. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Think about this. The peace of God that's promised, promised to us in this passage happens as we are putting our faith in Jesus. This is not a blanket command to just stop being anxious. Notice that's not what he's doing here. He is showing us that our peace that goes beyond comprehension is actually tied into the realities of who Jesus is. A peace that surpasses your ability to have control. This peace of God becomes the language used here is a fortress, is a protection when we actually don't have control. Do you see? Like, it's actually saying, when you don't have control and all hell is breaking loose, it is then that you have a peace that passes beyond understanding. Because if Jesus really is the king, and he has shown himself to be good and generous, then what right now is happening that's making you doubt his goodness? What right now is happening that's making you doubt that he is actually in control? But if Jesus, even in that, is a good king, then that means you can trust right now that he is allowing and giving to you exactly what he thinks is not only in your best interest, but is actually working for your true good. Jesus is truly a good king, then we can trust that he is allowing and giving to us exactly what he thinks is not only in our best interests, but that he knows is actually working for our true good. And if that's true, what does that mean? That means when your world is spinning out of control, you can loosen up, even if you don't get your way. It means you don't have to be a control freak because the gospel shows you he has my back. My plans might be going out the window. All of my well-structured agendas and timeline and how people should be reacting and responding and how my life's trajectory, obviously we're Americans, it should be, we're getting better, we're getting richer, we're getting stronger, right? Nope, when that crashes down, where do you go? <sighs> He's got my back. 
He has my back. I don't need to worry about my own good. Someone else is so deeply committed to my true good. Do you realize that as we learn to relinquish this battle for control, you are participating in the life of God right now. You are going to share in God's presence and his peace that people will look at you and say, you are a moron. Because they can't understand it. Because they don't have the peace of God through Jesus functioning in their life. So, we've hit each of those very briefly. There's a lot more we could say about all of those. As we have surveyed these four main idols, though, I hope you can see how the gospel not only speaks into your real life, but it's actually giving you a lens by which to view the world. But there's another layer to this that I want us to see. Scott encouraged me to add this to my sermon because I wasn't going to do it. But I asked Scott this question in our staffing on Friday. How do we survive having our idols exposed? How do you survive? Because we all know people who lose something that they think they need so deeply and sometimes actually take their life. They physically don't survive it or they crumble or they feel crippled or they essentially become no longer the human they were. How do we survive when our idols get exposed? How do you survive walking the gauntlet of idolatry, opening up? How do you survive this process? Well, what, yeah, what, what happens? I mean, maybe right now you're actually walking through idolatry being exposed and idols being taken away from you. Well, you can become bitter, and maybe you are bitter, and you just can humbly acknowledge that I am bitter. I'm angry at my spouse, my kids, my former boss, my family, my family of origin, my mom, my dad. You, you can just become bitter. You can become bitter at God. According to Psalm 115, in our pursuit of idolatry, we actually, no lie, look up Psalm 115, we actually lose our humanity. So, if your idols right now are being exposed, you can choose to fight, to bunker down, or you can choose to be remade. You see, being confronted with our idols offers us a chance for transformation. And the only way to survive having your idols exposed is to see that Jesus, by exposing your idols, is actually working his greatness and his glory deeper into your soul. When you realize that, you can survive your idols being exposed. And again, I say the word survive on purpose because for many people, serious loss, devastation, defeat, they shrivel up, become bitter, Just as an example, think about the stock market crash many years ago. Many people physically did not survive because their God was taken away. They had no reason to live. For many others, our health, our family, our kids, our career, our hobbies, remember, all good things, yet all created things. None of them the creator. So for us, how do we survive idols being exposed? What happens when we realize, wait a minute, yes, I I do have some faith in Jesus, 
which is amazing. But I also have a lot of faith in these other things. I'm also worshiping a lot of these other things. You survive your idols being exposed when you realize Jesus is pursuing you. Not to get you. As Scott talked about a couple weeks ago, not to punish you. But he's working his goodness and his glory deeper into you. He's showing you where sub-level loyalties are driving you away. Jesus is coming to rescue, not just once at the cross, but continually again and again in your life. And friends, you realize he's after your joy. You realize he's actually liberating you. So I would challenge you right now, if you are in a season of depression, anger, bitterness, anxiety is bringing you low, where do you think idolatry might be at root? How can you see that Jesus is actually pursuing you in this? Our last point, and we're going to be done. Point number three, gospel realization only happens through community. Many Christians will hear this type of sermon and say, great, I'm going to go get to work. I'm going to get my journal. I'm going to start processing all of this. I'm going to learn how to do this in my life. That's great, and that's part of it. You see, learning to understand the gospel and our idolatry was never intended to be a solo project. This was always intended to be something that we work on in life with each other. And this is because God has designed humanity to function through experiencing life with him. How? Through life with each other. We experience God when we do life together. People often say to me, oh, I don't know how to experience God. I don't know how to enjoy God. I don't know how to connect with God's presence. And they have no connection to the people of God. That's where you need to realize God has designed us to function in life together. That is where we hear good news. That is where we have people around us that can speak this type of good news to each other. Because the reality is, I just walk through these idols, but I don't know all of your lives. I don't know how these idols are operating in your life. But you know who hopefully does? People that you're open with. People that you're willing to be real with. Hopefully, that's some people in your mission community. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's some really good friends that you have. The only way you can actually begin to actually see what we call gospel fluency, the gospel speaking into our lives, realizing the gospel, is through people around you, through being willing to say, you know what, I really struggle with this. I'm really depressed right now. I'm really angry at my kids right now. I hate my job right now. I hate my spouse right now. By being willing to say those types of things and being willing to say, I need help. Who loves me enough to say, you know what, let's spend the rest of our lives talking about how the realities of Jesus speak into this right now. Church, are we going to do this? Are we going to be real enough to do that type of life together? So, for some of us, you need to talk less and listen more. For some of us, you need to be willing to be open. And some of us, you need to be willing to shut up and ask people some questions and get into people's world. So where is God highlighting idolatry? Where have you even now begun to experience the conviction of the Spirit? We're going to take communion now, and and the band can come up now as we're going to close now. And I know we did communion last week. You don't need to remind me. We're doing it on purpose again. 
Communion is a chance for us to repent afresh, to put our hope and identity in Jesus again. So even now as the band is coming up, let's just take a minute and be quiet and then I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to go to the communion table. Jesus, I pray right now that as we have maybe begun opening up, taking some initial steps down the gauntlet of having our idols exposed, I pray, Jesus, that you would continually be not just helping us see our idols, but helping, helping us see how you are the one who dismantles, destroys, but then ultimately replaces the idols at work in us. Jesus, we repent corporately as a church for our idols. Maybe for some of us it's money, which we don't necessarily think about our bank account needing big, but we think about the control or the power that we need. Jesus, we repent for where we have been quiet and hidden because we are too afraid to be ourselves. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to learn to be a people who are fluent, who can speak the language of the gospel into each other. And even now, as we come to the communion table, would you help us see that this communion table is not about our promises that we're going to make again to you, that we're going to try hard again. No, the communion table is your promise to us. This is you pursuing us, and we come and experience the benefits of this. So Jesus, we ask for your help that you would help us to be a people who not only worship and celebrate the gospel, but can speak it into each other. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing kindness and mercy to show us our idolatry. Help us to not grovel, but to celebrate what you are doing. And even if we don't feel there is any need for celebration, we celebrate you. Maybe we don't see what you're doing in our life right now. We can celebrate you though, Jesus. And even in that, you would help us to transform how we're viewing our life and our circumstances right now. Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.